This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The Freemasons are the oldest known fraternal organization in the world. Their roots can be traced back to England and Scotland with guilds of stonemasons and cathedral builders going back as far as the 1300s. When the need for new cathedrals declined, the Masons shifted their focus. They are a male-oriented, oath-bound society that requires strict discipline from its members. And although the Freemasons are not a secret society, they are a society with secrets. What goes on behind closed doors has been the subject of blockbuster movies and best-selling novels. Members have included Beethoven, Winston Churchill, King Edward VII, and Oscar Wilde. In the United States, 14 presidents, 35 Supreme Court justices, and 13 signers of the Constitution have been Masons. The Freemasons are still well-organized and practicing today. In America, it's said that the Freemasons lurk behind every aspect of life, from the early days of our nation's capital to political influence to murder. In 1798, a British author claimed that secret factions of the Freemasons called the Illuminati were subverting religions and state authority. Certainly, at the time, members held high-ranking positions at every social, political, and economic level. Rumors and whispers of conspiracies became widespread, but perhaps none as scandalous as the events of 1826. On September 12th that year, Stoneworker William Morgan vanished from an upstate New York jail. Considered more of a professional drunk and vagabond than stonemason, Morgan had moved his family from town to town and from one failed business endeavor to another. Along the way, he had managed to infiltrate the Freemasons, and it was there that Morgan's venture scheming took another direction. He had partnered with one David Miller, a struggling local newspaper publisher, to write a tell-all book on the inner workings and secrets of the Freemasons. The two had begun teasing the public with the impending release, hinting there were mysterious ceremonies, rituals, and headline-grabbing corruption. The hype, Morgan hoped, would mean an instant bestseller and a hefty fortune. And naturally, the Freemasons were less than thrilled. They demanded Morgan return stolen documents and halt the release of the book. Neither happened. Lodges held meetings to discuss how to deal with the potential fallout. On September 11th, law enforcement loyal to the organization arrested Morgan for outstanding debt. Later that night, several Masons arrived at the jail with bail money. As they ushered Morgan away to an awaiting carriage, a witness allegedly heard him shout, Murder! The former stonemason was never heard from or seen again. 
As the news traveled, the story became more elaborate until the rumor was that the Freemasons had kidnapped and killed Morgan. Miller went on to publish the book, even after a small mysterious fire broke out in his shop. The book, along with the story of Morgan's disappearance, became a symbol of all that was wrong with the young country, sparking the anti-Masonic movement. The Masons who had bailed Morgan out that night stood trial in 1827. Though without sufficient evidence that there had been a murder, the judge handed down lenient sentences. The book went on to be a bestseller, even without the many secrets the authors had promised, and membership in the Freemasons dwindled for a while. Some believed Morgan was dead. Others thought he'd fled to Canada. Some die-hard conspiracists claimed he'd assumed a new identity as a pirate in the Cayman Islands. Exactly what did happen to him is a mystery lost to time. But we're drawn to mysteries and seemingly unsolvable disappearances. And there's one disappearance that has captivated historians and the public for centuries. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. In 1585, the first colonizers arrived on Roanoke, a small island nestled between what's now known as the Outer Banks Barrier Islands and the North Carolina coast. Settlers and crew arrived to a land far from anything they'd known back in England. One of their ships had been lost at sea, leaving the newcomers with few supplies. The captain set sail back to England, promising to return with more ships and goods. After a harsh winter, those who survived elected to return to England on another ship that had arrived at the island. They set foot back in their homeland just days before the supply ship arrived on Roanoke. Unaware the settlers had left, the captain and crew were startled to find the camp deserted. Worried something had happened, the men searched for weeks before finally leaving a few soldiers and supplies behind and heading back to England. Within weeks, those left behind were dead. Sir Walter Raleigh remained undaunted by this harsh, unforgiving land. For his next attempt to colonize North America, he sent just over a hundred men, women, and children. The new colonists survived high seas to discover their new home wasn't anything like the land they expected. Like the other colonists before them, they'd come unprepared with insufficient supplies. Raleigh chose colonist John White as the first governor. While he had no political experience, he had been to the Americas before. He had served as an artist, tasked with illustrating and documenting the so-called New World. The ship arrived on Roanoke on July 22nd of 1587. The next morning, Governor White led a search party and found the remnants of the former colony, including the skeletons of the men who'd been left behind. White thought that indigenous people had attacked and murdered the men. It seems it didn't occur to him that the indigenous people in question probably weren't especially keen on having their land and resources forcibly taken over. Though the discovery was gruesome, it didn't persuade the colonizers to return to England. On July 25th, they disembarked from the ship and sought to rebuild the camp, despite having no experience surviving in the middle of the wilderness. The settlers hadn't come from England's elite society, but neither had they come from its underbelly. Many had been used to a bustling city, they had been shopkeepers, lawyers, or tradesmen, 
In exchange for colonizing America, England had promised them land of their own. With limited knowledge, the settlers planted crops and built new homes. On August 18th, White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, gave birth to a girl, making little Virginia Dare the first English child born in America. Life was hard, but good. The newcomers did their best to make a better way of life than it had in England. Unfortunately, they had the Little Ice Age era to deal with. The weather proved inhospitable, with droughts in the summer and harsh, cold winters. When one of their own wandered off into the wilderness and was killed by one of the local peoples, White realized that they were greatly outnumbered and sent a delegation of 21 men to try to make amends with the indigenous tribes. Assisting them was an indigenous man called Montero, who'd lived among the English. After his intervention and negotiation, the colonists and the Croatan people feasted together in a gesture of peace. It turned out that they shared a common enemy, another group of indigenous people, perhaps called the Roanoke. Feeling more safely settled, White returned to England on November 5th for more supplies. Unfortunately, the Spanish Armada prevented him from returning as quickly as he'd hoped. The Anglo-Spanish War caused Queen Elizabeth I to commandeer every available ship in anticipation of battle. White didn't return to the settlement for three years. When he finally arrived on his granddaughter's birthday in 1590, he found the Roanoke settlement completely deserted. Houses had been dismantled, building supplies had been taken. Only a single clue to their whereabouts had been left. Someone had carved a word on a wooden gatepost. Croatoan. Believing the settlers had gone to live with the Croatans, he returned to the ship for the night, intending to set out the next morning to look for them. But the anchor rope snapped, and bad weather forced the ship out to sea and back to England. White never saw his family again, Roanoke remains one of America's enduring mysteries. The disappearance of an entire colony without a trace has since become an iconic enigma, fueled by fiction, speculation, and insufficient evidence to point to any one explanation. In 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt gave a speech commemorating the lost colony. A bridge had connected Roanoke Island with the mainland, and the community had begun working on infrastructure to support tourism. The island, and the lost colony, experienced a resurgence in interest. Historians discovered that Sir Walter Raleigh tried to return to the island again in 1594, but the expedition failed due to poor weather conditions. After he was implicated and imprisoned for his role in an attempt to dethrone King James I, the next search for the colonists didn't happen until 1607. John Smith, of the newly established Jamestown, Virginia settlement, had been captured by the Powhatan people. In his talks with their leader, he learned about a place where people wore European clothing. Smith instantly thought of the lost colony and sent a letter and map to England. Two of Smith's search parties in 1608 failed to locate the colonists. In 1609, England received an unverified letter that the Powhatan had slaughtered any surviving colonists, though no evidence or remains suggested the statement was based on facts. Periodically, searches continued, 
though interest had faded over the years. Then, between 1701 and 1709, explorer and naturalist John Lawson spent time at the original colony site and visited the Hatteras tribe. When he noticed the strong English influence, members told him that some of their ancestors had been white with gray eyes. Lawson believed that the colonists had assimilated into the local peoples once they lost contact with England. The explanation seemed plausible, and further research died out until the 19th century, when academics began to theorize about what had happened to the colonists again. One theory agreed with Lawson, that the colonists had assimilated with some particular tribe. They further theorized the Powhatans had attacked them in retaliation for the English kidnapping their people. Another theory speculated that the colonists had integrated with possibly multiple peoples when they realized no help was coming from England. The gatepost carving seems to suggest that at least some left with the Croatans. Since none of the local tribes were large enough to take in all the colonists, Scholars have determined splitting up the village among the local peoples would have been the most logical choice. The last holdouts in the village may have finally decided to leave with the Croatans and left the carving in case White returned. Excavations have never turned up a sign of a struggle or massacre at the site. Along with missing building supplies, this suggests the colonists left of their own accord. There's also the possibility they'd tried to build a ship and return to England, though this is unlikely since they wouldn't have had enough provisions to make the journey. If they did try this, they were most likely lost at sea. But there's one more explanation. A small area off the Outer Banks has coffins inscribed with Christian markings, suggesting that the colonists might have moved there the theory goes that they were harvesting sassafras for Raleigh to sell. And this supports the conspiracy that Raleigh not only returned, but that he kept the colonists' survival quiet for personal gain. In the late 1800s, archaeologists began digging at the Roanoke site. The influx of Irish and German immigrants had sparked some multi-generational Americans to connect with their English ancestors. Meanwhile, the indigenous peoples, who might have held some answers, were driven from the area to grant the land to European-descended farmers. Without a lot of facts or evidence, the legend of the lost colony of Roanoke was revamped. All that remained were fictional stories, until Lewis Hammond made a rather unusual discovery in 1937. James Lester, an Emory University geologist, was leaving the university's alumni building on November 8, 1937, when Lewis Hammond approached and introduced himself. He showed Lester the rock he carried and asked if someone in the geology department might help decipher the markings carved onto it. Hammond told the geologist he'd come across the stone near the Virginia-North Carolina border. Lester admitted that the markings were unusual and difficult to make out. Before long, English and physics professors, as well as several curious students, joined them. They pieced together a single word, Ananias. Ananias had been Virginia Dare's father. Excitement washed over the group. The stone appeared to be a pivotal piece of evidence in the disappearance of those first colonists. The scholars took the stone to the biophysics lab for further evaluation. 
One of Emery's rising star professors rushed to the lab when he heard the news. Hayward Jefferson Pierce Jr. was the university's expert on Southern history. The team studied the stone late into the evening with barely a break for lunch or dinner. When Pierce and the others came out of the lab, they announced to their peers that they had deciphered the rest of the carvings. The stone told of heartbreak and loss. It read, Ananias Dare and Virginia went hence into heaven, 1591. The rest of the scratches mentioned a burial site where the remains of the colonists were buried after they had been massacred. The team made plans to revisit the site where the stone had been found and begin an archaeological dig. Hammond signed an agreement that granted Emery temporary custody of the stone, as well as exclusive research and publication rights. Two days later, Hammond, Lester, and Pierce left for Edenton, a town on the Virginia-North Carolina border. When they arrived, they had difficulty finding the exact location of the stone's origin. After leading the professors around a swamp, Hammond pointed to an approximate location. They hunted for additional inscribed stones or any evidence of the lost colony. Two days of exhaustive searches turned up nothing. Then Hammond left, never contacting the men or the university again. Suspicious, Emery hired the Pinkerton Agency to investigate. The agency reported that no one named Lewis Hammond existed. Pierce bought the stone for $500 in 1938 so that he could continue his study and perhaps locate additional evidence. If some of the colonists had survived, they might have left other clues to their whereabouts. He became so obsessed that he took a leave of absence from Emery. Then, in May of 1939, a stonecutter by the name of Bill Eberhardt claimed to have come across 13 more inscribed stones on a hill in Greenville County, South Carolina. He contacted Pierce, who quickly bought the property. While his peers thought the discovery was another scam, Pierce concluded that the stonecutter wasn't smart enough to pull off such a scheme, though he never found any more stones on the property. On July 15th, Isaac Turner of Atlanta, Georgia stepped forward, claiming he'd found a 15th stone. Not to be outdone, Eberhardt returned with stones 16 through 35 that he had allegedly uncovered in Habersham County, Georgia. Then, a man named William Bruce delivered stone number 36, and Eberhardt showed up once more with stones 37 through 45, five of which he claimed were grave markers. By winter, newcomer Tom Jett turned in stones 46 through 48. With so many stones and nothing coming from them, Pierce began losing the university's support. Instead, he convinced his father to help. Pierce Sr. ran Bernal College in Georgia. To Emory's relief, the college took over support and funding. On October 19th of 1940, Pierce called a press conference. He claimed he'd uncovered the story of Elizabeth Dare's survival from massacres, forced marches, and her desperate pleas for help. Pierce also wrote a lengthy piece about the Dare Stones and sent it to the Saturday Evening Post. The Post assigned one Boyden Sparks. The investigative reporter interviewed Pierce's former peers and determined that the Stones were fake and that Pierce was trying to salvage his career and reputation. 
Eberhardt had a history in faking indigenous relics and had ties to two of the other men who had found stones. The Post's article pointed out Pierce's delusions and stated that Emery's greatest minds had been swindled by a Georgia hillbilly. After the story appeared, Pierce retorted that Eberhardt had blackmailed him and his father, threatening to tell everyone they'd been working together to defraud the universities. For one day, the news knocked World War II stories from the top headlines. Pierce moved to Michigan, and he never spoke of the Darestones again. Though historians and scholars discounted the Darestones as forgeries and hoaxes, Pierce believed the first stone was authentic, based on the journal of one English writer by the name of William Strachey. In 1609, Strachey had sailed to North America for a new lease on life. A shipwreck left him stranded on Bermuda for nearly a year before he and the other survivors built a small boat and hugged the coastline up to Jamestown, Virginia. Miraculously, they all survived the trip. They found the settlement in total disarray. Strachey wrote in detail about the conditions there, which in turn served as the basis of the study of early colonial life for future historians like Pierce. Strachey also wrote about a prophecy and massacre that he said explained the Roanoke colonists' fate. And for Pierce, the prophecy neatly lined up with the inscription on that first stone. Pierce also relied on a Powhatan prediction of a cataclysmic event, and the prophecy claimed a nation would rise from the Chesapeake Bay and overtake the Powhatan. A chief had purportedly become so frightened that he ordered the Chesapeake people's extermination. The English had the misfortune of being in the Chesapeake Bay area around the same time. The colonists who went to live with the locals may have been massacred along with them. The theory was speculative, but Pierce took it to heart. The wording and grammar on the stone matched the writing and the spelling of the time, and colonists had been known to leave carvings in stone and wood. If Pierce was right, the first stone was authentic, but discounted as fake. Though Burnell College kept all 48 dare stones, it removed them from public display in 1941. At first, they were stored in a boiler room beneath the school's auditorium. Today, they reside in the attic inside one of the campus houses. Archaeologists are now certain that stones 2 through 48 were indeed faked. But that first stone? Tests are inconclusive. While it may be possible to determine the authenticity of the stone, the media circus in the 1930s has caused scholars and universities to be understandably reluctant. The project would be costly and time-consuming, and there's some concern that it might damage their reputations as it did with Pierce. Which leaves us with the mystery intact. We may never know if the original Dare Stone's message was real or a hoax, or what truly became of the lost colony of Roanoke. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. 
at JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Swan J. Turnblad had no idea what to do with the letter sitting on his desk. In all his time as the editor for Minneapolis's Swedish-language newspaper, he'd never seen anything like it. The author, 56-year-old Swedish-born J.P. Hedberg, was a successful businessman. In his letter, he stated that a local man had discovered a stone slab in the roots of a tree on his land. While that wasn't entirely unusual, the markings on it were. Hedberg included the inscription, which he said looked like an unknown alphabet consisting of 219 characters. Three grouped characters written in Roman letters read AVM, believed to refer to the Virgin Mary. Others resembled archaic Greek and Phoenician letters. One set of characters bore no resemblance to the others and may have been runic numerals, but most were old Scandinavian runes. The date carved on the stone read 1362. Turnblad sent a copy of the letter to the University of Minnesota for an expert opinion. There, Norwegian-born professor O.J. Breda read the letter and examined the stone. His familiarity with Scandinavian languages allowed him to transcribe the writings. It told the story of eight Swedish and 22 Norwegian men who'd set up a camp. Some went fishing, and upon their return, found ten men dead, and so asked the Virgin Mary to save them. Although he'd translated it, Breda was skeptical about the inscription's authenticity. He suggested that a runology expert study the stone. Breda's translation found its way to the Minnesota University student newspaper on January 14th of 1889. The story appeared along with the editorial comment that further tests should decide whether the discovery should be ranked with the Rosetta Stone or the Cardiff Giant. A month later, on February 22nd, Turnblad's newspaper also published Breda's translation. Turnblad added comments, sparking rumors that the stone had been inscribed during a 14th-century invasion of what's now Minnesota. The theory became popular with the Swedish newspaper's readership. 
Other Midwestern Scandinavian papers printed the piece, too. Eventually, the story made its way to larger publications like the Chicago Tribune. Somewhere in the telling, Breda's opinion regarding the authenticity became lost. Many with Scandinavian heritage wanted to believe the stone was real. To them, it would prove that they had discovered America long before other Europeans. The Scandinavian immigrants began to boast that not only had they discovered the land before anyone else, but they'd also been the first to penetrate the country's interior. Naturally, no one stopped to think that indigenous peoples had lived on the land, coast and interior, long before anyone else. Still, for the Scandinavian and other European communities, there was a score to settle. The university shipped the stone by rail to a philologist at Northwestern University in Illinois. There, Professor George Kerm initially thought the stone's inscriptions were genuine, but the more he considered it, the more the markings confused him. Though the stone had survived over 500 harsh Minnesota winters, the edges of the letters looked more like a newly carved tombstone. He agreed with Breda that a brunologist should take a look, and sent copies of the newspaper clippings and the inscription to the University of Oslo. Three professors there replied that the stone was a fraud. They stated that the inscription had been clumsily written by someone with barely any knowledge of runic letters, or basic history. Northwestern returned the stone to the man who had found it. Eight years later, in the summer of 1907, a fellow Scandinavian H.R. Holland visited him, seeking materials to use in a Norwegian settlement. He'd heard about the stone and convinced him to give it over. The following year, Holland published a book on the ruined stone. He offered to sell the stone to the Minnesota Historical Society, but they refused the $5,000 asking price, though they also published an article declaring the stone's authenticity. They cited several experts' opinions, though the experts in question denied ever looking at the stone. The public seemed less enamored with the story than they had previously been, and the stone's popularity faded. But in 1948, Minnesota established the Runestone Memorial Park in Alexandria. Holland found himself in a three-way lawsuit over ownership so contentious that the court ordered the stone locked up and bonded for $25,000. Though there's no actual proof the stone is genuine, many still believe that the Norse people made it to Minnesota before other Europeans. It's a mystery that may never be settled. Today, the stone is on display at the Runestone Museum. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. 
works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.